Last year we started something uh, uh, during Old Fashioned Sunday. We, we, rather than just preach a normal message out of the Word, we started going back and listening to some very, very old preachers. And I want to do the same again today. Uh, I want to share with you this morning a sermon by Dwight L. Moody. Dwight Lyman Moody. Curtis Hudson, in his book, Great Preaching on Soul Winning, gives some biographical information about this man, who most people know as D.L. Moody. He said this, Some have said that D.L. Moody may well have been the greatest evangelist of all time. In a 40-year period, he was used of God, some say, in winning a million souls to Christ. He founded three Christian schools, launched a great Christian publishing business, established a world-renowned Christian conference center, and inspired literally thousands of preachers to win souls and conduct revivals. He was a shoe clerk at the age of 17. And at that time, his ambition was to make $100,000. That's all he wanted to do. But he was converted at the age of 18 when his Sunday school teacher came to him in his shoe store and shared the gospel with him, and he was saved. And he uncovered hidden gospel gold in the hearts of millions of people for the next half century. He preached to 20,000 people a day in Brooklyn. And the amazing thing about that, 20,000 people a day, is that he would not allow anyone in unless they were not a member of a church. So 20,000 people a day, they had to buy a ticket to hear him. And only those who were not already part of a church could come. And they came. He met a young song leader in Indianapolis, and he said to this man bluntly, he said, you're the man I've been looking for for eight years. He said, quit your job and come with me across the country uh, as we preach the gospel. And Ira Sankey did just that. And from that time on, it was Moody will preach and Sankey will sing. He traveled across the American continent and through Great Britain in some of the greatest and most successful evangelistic campaigns that the, company, or that the, that the community had ever known. His tour of the world with Sankey was considered the greatest evangelistic enterprise of the century. Henry Varley once said, it remains to be seen what God will do with a man who gives himself up wholly to him. And Moody endeavored to be under God that man. And the world did marvel at what God did with him. Two great monuments stand today to the indefatigable effort and energy of this tremendous gospel warrior. One is Moody Bible Institute. And one is the great Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. D.L. Moody went to be with the Lord in 1899. Now last year on Old Fashioned Sunday, we heard from one of his contemporaries. We heard from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon spoke and um, and ministered for many years in the great Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. They were contemporaries, although they were separated by an ocean. But they were also separated by some other things. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a master of the English language. His ability to to use English was unparalleled, maybe in history. I don't know if anybody has ever been able to speak like Charles Haddon Spurgeon did. D.L. Moody, on the other hand, was a much more homespun, homegrown, homeboy type of preacher. His preaching was filled with personal stories and anecdotes, and you'll hear I and stories a lot as he spoke. His preaching was warm and colloquial and anecdotal. So as I try to share with you one of his sermons, this is not me preaching, this is D.L. Moody preaching this morning. As I try to do that, remember, every time you hear the pronoun I, that's not Bill Johnson. I wasn't in the great fire of Chicago. That's 
D.L. Moody. And some of these things might seem a bit dated, but I think you'll understand. This particular sermon I'm going to share with you this morning is called Christ Seeking Sinners. It was probably preached more than once because he was an evangelist. He went across the country and around the world preaching, and he probably shared this same message multiple times. I did find a copy of this message in a digitized newspaper from 1895 online. I didn't know you could find 1895 newspapers online, but there it was. And they had printed this particular sermon in there, July 6th, 1895. And that particular newspaper was an Australian paper, so it seems like he may have preached it there in Australia at that time. But if you had been in the crowd, wherever he preached it in the years around 1895, I think he would have heard something like this. I think he would have started by saying, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And let's read some scripture. Luke chapter 18, we'll begin reading in verse 35. It came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight. Thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. Means he was a little short guy. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. I would like to speak to you this morning on that particular verse. Verse number 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, to me, this is one of the sweetest verses in the whole Bible. For in this one little short sentence, we're told that Christ came into the world and that why he came into the world, what he came for. He came for a purpose. He came to do a work. And in this little verse, that whole story is told. He came not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. When the Prince of Heaven came down into this world, he told us what he came for. God sent him. He came to do the will of his Father. And what was that? To seek and to save that which was lost. You know, you can't find any place in Scripture where a man was sent by God to do a work, and he failed in doing that work. God, for example, sent Moses to Egypt to bring three million bondmen out of the house of bondage into the promised land. Did he fail? 
Well, had you been there on that day in the court when Pharaoh said to Moses, Who is God that I should listen to him and send him out? It might have seemed like he failed, but he did not fail. God sent Elijah to stand before Ahab, and it was a bold thing when he told him that it would not rain uh, and there would be no dew for three years. And yet there was no rain for three years and six months. And now here we see God sending his beloved son from his bosom, from the throne, down into this world. Do you think he's going to fail? The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Thanks be to God, he can save to the uttermost, and there is not a man or a woman in this world who may not find it so if he is willing to be saved. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now I find it a great blessing when I'm looking at a passage like this and looking all around it to see what what brought it about, what is the context, what is the story. And if you look back to the close of the 18th chapter, you know what you find there, you find a a, a, uh, uh, Christ coming near the city of Jericho and sitting by the wayside there is this poor, blind beggar. Perhaps he had been there for years let out maybe by one of his children every day to take his place. Or maybe as some blind people that we have seen, he had a a dog that led him along. And there he had sat for years, and his cry had been, please, give a poor blind man some money. Well, one day as he was sitting there, some some fellow came walking along, and he sat down beside him, and he said, Bartimaeus, I have some good news for you. And he said, what is that? He said, there is a man in Israel who is able to give you sight. And Bartimaeus said, no, he's not able to give me sight. You see, I was born blind. I'll never see. Not in this world, maybe in the world to come, but I'll never see in this world. But the man said, let me tell you, I was just in Jerusalem, and I watched as the great Galilean prophet there made a man who was born blind see. And Bartimaeus said, how did that happen? How did, it, how did he do it? And he said, well, he spat on the ground. He made some clay, he anointed his eyes, and he sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And while he was doing so, he got two good eyes. Yes, it is so. I talked with him. I didn't see a man in Jerusalem who could see any better than him. He didn't need any glasses. His eyes were restored perfectly. Bartimaeus said, well, what this guy charge? The man said, nothing. No charge. No charge, no fee, no doctor's bill. He got his sight for nothing. You just tell him what you need, and he gives it to you. You don't have to be influential. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to have an important deputation. The poor have as much influence with him as the rich all are alike. Bartimaeus said quietly, what is his name? And the man said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Bartimaeus, if he ever comes by this way, if he ever comes by this way, you need to make sure that you lay your case out before him. Bartimaeus said, you may be sure of that. He will never pass by me without my calling out to him. Well, a day or two later, Bartimaeus was once again in his place. And he was seated by by the wayside there. And he was once again begging. He was once again crying out, "Uh, give a poor blind man some money. And he heard as a crowd seemed to be coming in the distance. Footsteps and voices. And he asked out somebody nearby. He said, tell me, who's coming? And someone said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And Bartimaeus thought to himself, why, that's the man who gives sight to the blind. He said, I must, go, I, must, I must cry out to him. And he lifted up his voice and he cried, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Peter, one of the disciples. 
He said, hush, be quiet. Perhaps he thought at that time that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to be crowned king and he didn't think he wanted to be disturbed by a poor blind beggar. But Bartimaeus lifted up his voice louder. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And his prayer reached the ear of the son of God. As all prayers do. And Jesus stopped. And they led the blind man to Jesus. And the Lord said, what shall I do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said, you shall have it. And immediately his eyes were open. Can you imagine the scene? Can you imagine what a wonderful scene? Bartimaeus, his eyes are open, and the very first thing he ever sees in this world is the face of the Son of God. Can you imagine? And all of a sudden, he's glorifying God. And I imagine I can hear him shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Well, pardon me if I draw on my imagination a little bit. I've got to imagine some things that might have happened right after this. Bartimaeus gets into Jericho and he says, I've got to go tell my wife about this. I've got to go tell the family what has happened to me. And so he's running home. And as he's running home, another fellow comes walking by and passes by him. But as he passes by him, he stops up short, spins on his heel and turns back. And he says, Bartimaeus, is that you? And Bartimaeus says, yes. And the guy says, well, you can see. What has happened? How did you get your eyesight? And the fellow says, well, I just met Jesus of Nazareth outside the city. Ask him to have mercy on me. And the man said, Jesus of Nazareth, is he in town? And Bartimaeus says, yes. He's, he's just outside the town right now. The man says, I've got to see him. And away he runs down the street. He gets close to the mob. And he tries to see him, but he can't because he's a little guy. He's short. He can't see over the crowd, and he says, I am not going to be disappointed. And so he runs on. He climbs up into a sycamore tree, and he says, if I can just get out on that branch ahead of the crowd and get out on that branch that's hanging out over the street, I'll be able to see him. That must have been a weird sight, don't you think? This little old man, probably got a pot belly, climbing up into that tree like a little old boy, trying to hide in the leaves where he thought nobody would see him to get a glimpse of this passing stranger. And here comes the crowd. He's looking for Jesus. He sees one face, maybe the face of Peter, and he says, no, that can't be him. He looks at another man, and probably John, and he says, no, that can't be him. But at last his eye rests on one fairer than the sons of men. That's him, says Zacchaeus, peeping out from among the branches, looking down upon the wonderful God-man in amazement. And at last the crowd comes to the tree and it looks as if Jesus is going to pass by. And just as Jesus passes directly underneath the tree, he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. Now my first thought would have been, and yours probably would have been too, how in the world does he know my name? I've never been introduced to him, but he knew him. And sinner, Christ knows all about you. He knows your name. He knows your house. You need not try to hide from him because he knows where you are and he knows all about you. Well, the Lord goes to his home, goes to be his guest. And while he's there, the Pharisees begin to murmur and complain, this man receiveth sinners. But while the Pharisees were complaining, the Lord uttered the words of our text. He said, I didn't come to Zacchaeus to make him wretched, to condemn him, to torment him. I came to bless and save him. And then he said, the son of man, came to seek and save that which was lost. Oh, hear me this morning. 
If there's even one man or woman hearing this today who believes that he or she is lost, I have good news to tell you. Christ has come for you. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I was at the Fulton Street prayer meeting one Saturday night a many, good many years ago. When the meeting was over, a man came up to me and he says, I'd like for you to go with me and preach to the prisoners at the city prison. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting. I'd like to do that. So I went with him. When I got there, I discovered there's no chapel in connection with that prison. And I had to preach standing at a little iron rail, looking down a great, long, empty room with cells on either side of it, perhaps hundreds, three or four hundred men uh, along those cells. I couldn't see any of them. They were in their cells. And so I had to preach. And I'll tell you, that was difficult work. I've never preached to bare walls before. But when it was over, I thought I'd like to see to whom I'd been preaching. And so I walked down from along the cells and talked with some of the men. I went to the very first and closest door where the inmates could have heard me best, I thought. There was a couple of guys in there, and they were playing cards. I suppose they'd been playing all the while. And so I looked at them and said, how is it with you? And the guy said, well, stranger, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about us. We're in here because false witnesses swore a lie about us. That's why we're here. I thought to myself, well, Christ can't save anybody here. There's nobody lost in here. So I went on down to the next cell. Friend, how is it with you? And this fellow said, well, the man that did the thing looked very much like me. So they caught me and I'm here. He was innocent too. I passed along to the next cell. How is it with you? Well, we got into a bad crowd. And the man that did this thing got clear, and we got taken up, but we never did anything. I went along to the next cell. How is it with you? Well, our trial comes on next week, but they don't have a thing against us, and we're going to get free. I went around nearly every cell. The answer was always the same. They've never done anything. I never saw so many innocent men in one place in my life. Nobody to blame but the magistrates, according to their way of it. And that's been the story for 6,000 years. I got discouraged as I went through the prison on and on and on, cell after cell. Every man had an excuse. If he hadn't won, the devil helped him come up with one right there on the spot. And I had almost got through the prison. I had almost come to the very last cell when I came to one and found a man with his elbows on his knees and his head in his hands and two little streams of tears running down his cheeks. What's the trouble? I said. And he looked up the picture of remorse and despair and he said, Oh, my sins are more than I can bear. And I shouted, thank God for that. And he looked at me for a moment and he said, what? What? Aren't you the man who's been preaching to us? And I said, yes. And I said, he said, didn't you say a minute ago that you are my friend? And I said, yes. And he said, and yet you are glad that my sins are more than I can bear. And I said, let me explain. If your sins are more than you can bear, then let me tell you of one who can bear your sins, one who will bear them for you. And he said, who's that? And I said, the Lord Jesus Christ. He won't bear my sins, the man said. I've sinned against him all my life. And I said, I don't care if you have. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses from all sin. And so I stood and I told him how Christ had come to seek and to save that which was lost, to open the prison doors and set the captives free. It was like a cup of refreshment to find a man who believed he was lost. And so I stood there and I held up a crucified Savior to him. Christ was delivered for our offenses, died for our sins, rose again for our justification. 
and for a long time, the man couldn't believe that such a miserable wretch as himself could be saved. He enumerated all his sins to me, and I told him the blood of Christ could cover them all. And after I had talked with him, I said, let's pray. He got down on his knees inside the cell, and I knelt outside, and I said, you pray. And he knelt down, and like the poor publican, he lifted up his voice, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a vile wretch. And when I next looked at him, I saw the remorse and despair had fled away. His countenance was beaming with celestial light. The tears of joy had come into his eyes, and the tears of despair were gone. The son of righteousness had broken out across his path. His soul was leaping within him for joy. He had received Christ as Zacchaeus did, joyfully. His face was lighted up with the light that comes from the celestial hills. I said goodbye. And I know that I'll see him in another world. Now I ask you, can you tell me why the Son of Man came down to that prison that night and passing by cell after cell after cell after cell stopped? at that particular one and set that captive free. It was because the man believed he was lost. You see, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. <laughs> oh, that we would wake up to the thought of what it is to be lost. The world has been rocked to sleep by Satan, who's going up and down and telling people it doesn't mean anything. But I believe in the old-fashioned heaven and hell. Christ came down to save us from a terrible hell. We hear of a man who has lost his health and we sympathize with him and we say, oh, that's terrible. Our hearts are drawn out in sympathy. We hear of another man who has lost his wealth and we say that too is terrible. Or of one who has lost his reputation and his standing among men and we say that's terrible. <laughs> we know that what it is to lose health and wealth and reputation, but what is the loss of all those things compared with the loss of the soul? I was in an eye infirmary in Chicago some time a while back, sometime before the great fire. My mother brought a beautiful little baby into the doctor, a baby that was only a few months old, and she wanted the doctor to look at the baby's eyes, and he did so. And then he looked at her sadly, and he said, I hate to tell you, but this baby is blind, and will be blind for the rest of its life. In the moment he said that, the mother seized the child, pressed it to her bosom, and gave this terrible scream. It pierced my heart. My darling, she said, are you never to see the mother that gave you birth? Doctor, I can't stand it. My child, my child. I was weeping. The doctor was weeping. It was a sight to move any heart. But what is the loss of eyesight to the loss of a soul? I had a thousand times rather have these eyes taken out of my head than to go to the grave blind and go to the grave blind than lose my soul. I have two sons and no one but God knows how much I love them, but I would rather see their eyes dug out of their head than to see them die lost and go to the grave without Christ and without hope. The loss of a soul. See, Christ knew what that meant. That's what brought him from the bosom of the Father. That's what brought him from the throne. That's what brought him to Calvary. The Son of God was in earnest when he died on Calvary. It was to save a lost world. It was to save your soul and mine. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Oh, the loss of the soul. How terrible it is. If you're still lost, I beseech you, don't rest until you have found peace in Christ. 
Fathers and mothers, if you have children who are not yet in the ark, don't rest until they're brought into it. Don't discourage your children from coming to Christ. The Son of Man came to save children as much as old gray-haired man. He came for all, rich and poor, young and old. Young man, young woman, if you are lost, may God show it to you and may you press into the kingdom. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save you. You know, there are two bidders for your soul. It's for you to decide which shall have it. Satan offers that which he cannot give. He is a liar and has been from the foundation of the world. I pity the man who is living on the devil's promises. He lied to Adam. He deceived him. He stripped him of all he had and then left him in his lost, ruined condition. And all the men since Adam living on the devil's lies, the devil's promises have been disappointed and will be down to the end of the chapter. Oh, but the Lord Jesus is able to give what he offers. And he offers eternal life to every lost soul. The gift of God is eternal life. Who will have it? Who will have it? Will anyone flash it over the wires and let it go up to the throne of God that you want to be saved? Some time ago I was talking with a man about these things. And he told me he was anxious to be saved. And he said, I I can't because Christ has never sought for him. Christ had never called him. I said, what are you waiting for? He said, I'm waiting for Christ to call me, and as soon as he calls me, I'm coming. Well, there may be others who've got that same notion. And I don't believe for a moment that there's a man in this land that the Spirit of God has not striven with at some period of his life. I don't believe there's a person, but Christ has sought after him. Bear in mind, Christ is the one who does the seeking. He takes the place of the seeker. Every man who has ever been saved through these 6,000 years was first sought after by God. No sooner did Adam fall than God sought him. He had gone away frightened and hid himself among the bushes in the garden, but God took the place of the seeker. And from that day, God has always had the place of the seeker. No man, no woman has ever been saved, but that he sought them first. Do you remember the parables Jesus spoke to us in the 15th chapter of Luke? Do you remember the man, the shepherd, bringing home his sheep into the fold? And as they pass by, he's counting them. Do you remember the story? I can picture in my mind as he counts them, one, two, three, on up he goes to 99, but he thought he had 100. And he says to himself, wait a minute, I must have miscounted. And so he starts over again, one, two, three, on up to 99, I'm missing one of my sheep. What does he do? He doesn't say, I will let him find his own way back. No, he takes the place of the seeker. He goes out into the mountain. He hunts until he finds that lost one. And then he lays it on his shoulder and brings it home. Is it the sheep that finds the shepherd? No, it's the shepherd that finds and brings back the sheep. And he rejoiced to find it. Undoubtedly, the sheep was glad to be back in the fold. But it was the shepherd who rejoiced. It was the shepherd who called his friends and said, Rejoice with me. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. In that same chapter, there was the woman with ten pieces of money. Do you remember that story? She had been paid for something she had done that day, perhaps. Ten pieces of silver, and as she got ready for bed that night, she took the money out of her pocket and laid it on the table and counted it out. Nine. There's supposed to be ten. Nine. She counts it again. I haven't been anywhere outside of the house. Nine. What could have happened? She pulls the pocket out of her, out of her clothing, perhaps, and sees there's a hole in there. Did she sit there and wait for the money to get back in her pocket? No. She took a broom and a light 
She moved the sofa. She moved the table. She moved the chairs. She turned that house upside down. She swept every corner until she found it. And when she had found it, who rejoiced? The piece of money? No, she rejoiced. The woman who found it. In all those parables, Jesus is telling us the same thing. He's telling us God takes the place of seeker. And people talk of finding Christ, but it's Christ who finds them. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. I was speaking with another young man about these things. He told me that he was too great a sinner to be saved. And I thought to myself, why, such are the very men Christ came after. This man receiveth sinners and eats with them. The only charge they could bring against Christ down here was that one, that he hung around with bad men. But they are the very kind he's willing to receive. All you've got to do is prove to me you're a sinner. And I can show you that you have a Savior. And the greater the sinner you are, the greater need you have of a Savior. The harder your heart, the more need you have of Christ. The blacker you are, the more need you have of a Savior. If your sins rise up before you like a dark mountain, bear in mind that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. There is no sin so big, so black, or so corrupt and vile, but the blood of Christ can cover it. And that's why I preach the old gospel again and again. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Oh, it was Adam's fall. It was his loss that brought out and demonstrated God's love. God never told Adam when he put him into Eden that he loved him. It was his fall. It was his sin that brought that out. A friend of mine from Manchester, England, was in Chicago a few years back. He was very much interested in the city, great city, with its 300,000 or 400,000 inhabitants. And now let me pause and speak as Bill Johnson for a moment. Isn't that hilarious? 300,000 or 400,000 inhabitants. Tells you how long ago this was. Okay, now I'm back. I'm D.O. Moody again. A great city with its 300,000 or 400,000 inhabitants, with its great railway centers, its lumber market, its pork market, its grain market. He said he went back to Manchester and told his friends all about Chicago. But he couldn't get anybody interested in it. It was a great many hundreds of miles away. People didn't seem to care about this city. But then one day there came flashing across the wire the news that the city of Chicago was on fire. And my friend said the people in Manchester were suddenly interested. They devoured every dispatch they could find. They bought up the papers. They, they read every particle of news. And at last when the dispatch came that Chicago was burning up, that 100,000 people were turned out of house and home, then everyone became so interested that they began to weep for us. They came forward, they laid down their money. Some gave hundreds of dollars for the relief of the poor sufferers. It was the calamity of Chicago that brought out the love of Manchester or London or Liverpool. I was in that terrible fire. I saw men that were wealthy stripped of all they had. They went to bed that Sunday night, the richest, wealthiest men in the land. They woke up the next morning paupers. I did not see a man weep. But when the news came flashing along that Liverpool gives $10,000, Manchester sends $5,000, London is giving money to aid the city, as the news kept flashing that help was coming, our city was brokenhearted. I saw men weep then. The love that was shown us broke our hearts. And so the love of God ought to break every heart today, because it was love that brought 
Christ down here to die for us. It was love that made him leave his place by the Father's throne and come down here to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, now for the sake of those who might still be struggling with this and might believe that Christ has never sought for them, let me just for a second share a few of the ways that he might seek because there are a great many ways in which he does so. For example, one night I found a man in the inquiry room and the Lord had been speaking to him by the prayers of a godly sister who had died a little while ago. Her prayers were answered. He came into the inquiry room trembling from head to foot. I talked to him about the plan of salvation. The tears trickled down his cheeks. At last he took Christ as his Savior. You see, the Son of Man sought out that young man through the prayers of his sister and then through her death. Some of you have godly praying mothers who have prayed whole nights for your soul who have now gone on to heaven. Maybe there was a time when you took their hand and promised that you would meet them there. And that was the Son of God seeking you by your mother's prayers and even by her death. Some of you have got faithful, godly ministers who weep for you in the pulpit, plead with you to come to Christ. You have heard heart-wrenching sermons. And the truth has gone down deep into your heart. Tears have come to your cheeks. That was the Son of God seeking you. Some of you have had godly praying Sunday school teachers urging you to come to Christ. Some of you perhaps have Christian friends around you and they have talked with you and pleaded with you to come to Christ. That's the Son of God seeking after your soul. Some of you might have had a tract, a pamphlet put into your hand with a title, something like Eternity, Where Will You Spend It? And the arrow has gone home. That was the Son of God seeking after you. Many of you have been laid on a bed of sickness when you had time to think and meditate and in the silent watches of the night when everybody was asleep. The Spirit of God has come into your chamber, has come to your bedside, and the thought came stealing through your mind that you ought to get right with God and become a child of God and an heir of heaven. That was the Son of God seeking after your lost soul. Oh, my friends, open the door of your heart. Let the heavenly visitor in. Do not turn him away any longer. Do not say, as Felix said, go your way this time. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. Make this a convenient season. Make this the hour of your salvation. Receive the gift of God now. Open the door of your heart now and say welcome, thrice welcome, into this heart of mine.